so um, <coughs> congratulations, day three. <coughs> Voila. And um, no, just uh, I'm talking with many people now, the interviews. You know, it's um, being a good cook, feeling into our hearts, daring to feel our lives, which in the ways of the world is not that common that we are willing to look at our lives. Here's a quote from St. Augustine from the year 399. 399 was a long time ago. It's 2014. This was 399. So St. Augustine says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas, wonder at the long courses of the rivers, wonder at the vast ocean, wonder about the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. <laughs> the year 399. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. So, In my own story, I, I began to wonder at the age of four years old. And I was um, riding in the back seat of my parents' car. I was, we were driving down the hill. The name of the road was Corey Hill Road. It had a beautiful view overlooking Brookline, Massachusetts, the United States. And as we were going down the hill to visit my grandmother at the age of four, I had my first realization that it wasn't going to last, that I was going to die, and that everyone was going to die. And I remember that so distinctly, and I remember then asking my mother and father about this, and they both said to me very lovingly, and very kindly, don't worry, Bobby. It's called Bobby in those days. Don't worry, Bobby. It's not going to happen for a long, long, long time. Now, I can still remember the kindness in their voice. They didn't want me to get too upset. But I also knew what I knew. And I knew they were not telling me the truth. <laughs> I wasn't upset with them. But I knew that this is the reality. And unfortunately to stay, that was at the age of four, that's when I began, I woke up a bit, like, it's not gonna last. What is this life? And by the time I was nine years old, so a span of five years, my younger brother died. I shared a, a, a room with him. He died of an illness called Tay-Sachs disease. And my best friend, who I played with every day, her name was Ellen Chabot. And one day I went over to her house to play with her like I did the day before and the day before and the day before I did like that. And 
and her father was crying and told me to go away. I didn't know what was going on. And then I found out that Ellen had died in the middle of the night. She went into a diabetic coma. She wasn't even diagnosed with diabetes. Something happened. And then about another year or so later, my grandfather who lived downstairs, we had a two-family house, he lived downstairs. My grandma, and he died of a heart attack. And so this left me in a space of a lot of confusion and despair and grief and soul-searching. What is this life? <clears throat> and, um, you know, I somehow managed to get through school. Though I was probably a pretty strange kid. So a lot of kids didn't like me. Some kids picked on me. But when I look back on it, I was probably a pretty strange guy because like, I had dealt with these big deaths and what the hell is this life? That's what was up for me. Vietnam War was there. It was the 1960s. The times were a-changing. And um, it was a very confusing time in my life. And um, I graduated high school very luckily. I actually wasn't a bad student earlier in my school career, but I desperately wanted to be liked so much. That, and I found that the kids that I wanted to like me were the kids that were getting in trouble. So I thought to myself, if I could just get bad grades, then maybe they would like me. <laughs> so I started getting bad grades. But that didn't, it didn't change. <laughs> so I barely made it out of high school. And some other friends, of course, uh, went off to college. And fortunately, uh, at the time of the Vietnam War, they were doing a draft, and I got a very high draft number. Though I was so confused, if I got a low one, maybe I would have went, I don't know what I would have done as I was so lost. I was actually so lost that I didn't even know how lost I was. That's how lost I was. And um, some friends went off to college and I thought to myself, well, maybe I should go, but I didn't have very good grades and I ended up going to some uh, prep school in, near Harvard Square in Cambridge that was, he had to wear a suit jacket and tie every day. It was run by a submarine commander. <laughs> and. Um, at the end of that year, I was fortunate enough to get into one st state college in northern Vermont. And the reason that I picked the state college in northern Vermont was I was really into downhill skiing and this good skiing in Vermont. And this college was right near a ski area. And so for those first two years, I majored in skiing, getting drunk, getting high on marijuana, and trying to meet girls. And after two years, I flunked out and um, pretty successful in getting drunk and getting high, but not so successful in the girlfriend department. <laughs> and so I flunked out of school and my mother and father, pretty concerned, <laughs> and my mother says to me, Bobby, isn't there anything in the school, the classes that would interest you? And because the, the school had arranged that I could be readmitted back on warning after flunking out. So my mother was begging me to go back to school and see, maybe there's a course that will, will, that will interest you. And so I knew 
in looking at the course catalog, I didn't want any more reading, writing, arithmetic, history. That, that wasn't addressing, that wasn't, had, didn't have any meaning to me at the time. But I saw one class as I looked through the schedule that perked my interest. It was called something like the Wisdom of the East, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. Of course, I had no idea what any of that meant. But there was something about the East. Now, this is going to be funny, but it's really true. My experience growing up in Boston with the East was going to Chinese restaurants. I loved Chinese food. I loved the food. I loved the artwork. I loved how even the waiters and the waitresses, they had a different vibe. And there was something about the East that was fascinating to me. The smell was good and there's pictures of Buddhas and all these things. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go check this out. I had no idea what I was getting into. But I liked Chinese food, so I, that was a good start. <laughs> and I'll never forget on that first day going into my class. And I walk in, and my professor, who I'd never met or seen before, was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I had never had a professor in my life that sat on his desk, never mind sitting in a full lotus position. Who the hell is this guy? I'd never seen anything like this. And the way that he held himself, the, the, what he had to say was like, I never met a person like this before. He was embodied. He was a practitioner. He, he knew something as time went on. And I realized, I, I want to know what this guy knows. This, some, this is very different than any other professor I'd ever had before in my life. His name was Bill Jackson. He was kind of like my heavenly messenger, pointing to me that there's maybe another way. Because I had been visited by the other messengers early on of aging and illness and especially death. And I didn't know. And here's this guy sitting, uh, being uh, in a way that I'd never met a, another human being before that was indicating there may be another way. He had us first begin to read the Tao Te Ching by Latsu, The Way of Life, the book of the Tao. And I started reading the Tao Te Ching and I couldn't believe that somebody had written and thought about life in this way. I was so um, just, I fell in love with the Tao, with the way of life. How many of you have looked at The Way of Life, The Tao Te Ching by Latsu? Anyone? Yeah, so there's a few people. Beautiful book. Consists of just 81 poems or epigrams. So I fell in love with these teachings from Latsu, The Way of Life, resonated very deeply within me. When I came to epigram number 47, this particular poem or epigram really, really spoke to me. And it said something like this. It says, there's no need to look, to look outside your window. 
for everything that you need to know is inside you. That the way to do is to be. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And these were very haunting and very powerful words. I had actually, it had never, I've never thought about this. This never occurred to me that actually you could begin to look inside yourself for answers. I mean, I just had not a clue. And here was this knock saying, you who, you want to know something? Begin to look in this book. But I, of course, I also understand I was very lost and filled with a lot of grief and despair from earlier years. But that was a real turning point in my own life and beginning to go more in an inwards direction, began to meditate. This is why perhaps that I resonate so much with the story of the Buddha I mentioned earlier. He's, and as I mentioned, he was a young prince destined to become a king, and he himself came across these messengers of aging, illness, death, and then eventually meeting a person that's dedicated to understanding the meaning of life, a holy person. I could so personally relate to that story. That was in some ways my own story of, of what is this life? This, from the age of four years old, what is this life? So to read this story of the Buddha, and the story of his awakening, I could so much personally relate to. A friend of mine, Sylvia Borstein, who's a meditation teacher, when her, she kind of jokes about this one. When her mother died, she tried to connect with many different people to talk about death, and no one wanted to talk, and then she went to a Buddhist meditation retreat, and everybody was talking about death. And it's like, yeah, this is my kind of people. <laughs> Finally, let's kind of talk about death, life. I'm so grateful for my teacher, Bill Jackson, who I actually reconnected with on Facebook. This is the wonders of Facebook as well. <laughs> and, um, and that opportunity, so many years later, to thank him deeply. That they let him know he was my fourth heavenly messenger. Mm -hmm. He went on to become a professor in some university, he has since retired. And, um, and then you might take a moment, who, who's been your messenger? Who's, who's awakened in you? But there may be another way. Just to pause for a moment with great gratitude. Because I trust each of us has had the other messengers too of aging and illness and death. And this fourth one, that there may be a way to understand more deeply. So as, um, 
the Buddha left his palace and he experienced many different meditative traditions and he mastered them. He was a very excellent student and every time he mastered a particular meditative tradition, the teacher would just say, well, you can sit beside me and you can teach too. And these meditations and traditions had to do a lot with concentration, absorption, one-pointedness. But Siddhartha, the, he still hadn't found what he was looking for. And then he thought, well, maybe uh, the, the, the way is through self-mortification, punishing the body. So he joined five other ascetics and they practiced severely self-mortification. And Siddhartha actually was um, excelled at this. And, and he reduced his food intake to one grain of rice a day. And in time, he got so weak, and if he put his hand on his belly, he would feel his tailbone. And he was close to potential exhaustion and not gonna make it. And he realized the futility of these extremes and recognized the importance of taking care of oneself gradually beginning to retake food, building up his health. And then realizing he has seen so many different teachers and practiced so many different things and that there's no one else left to go see or to study under and he just found himself by this big, beautiful, glorious tree and he sat underneath it and took a resolve that there's no other place to go, there's no other teacher to see and that he's gonna just stay here and just be with his own experience. And while he was underneath the tree, as he was meditating, he recalled the time when he was a young boy. And he recalled the time when it was one of these like beautiful summer days where the breeze, or actually it was a spring day, and the breeze was just right. It was just the right temperature and feeling. It was a glorious, beautiful day. And he was remembering this and reveling in the beauty of that day. And what was remarkable about that day was that on that very same day, that also he remembered, he recalled, it was the beginning of breaking into the soil with the farmers to turn over the soil to plant the seeds. And because his sensitivity was so heightened because of the beauty of the day, then he saw the farmer and the oxes and the plow and the plows beginning to cut into the earth, to open up the earth, to plant the seeds. But his sensitivity was so much so that as the plow was cutting into the earth, he almost sensed or felt like the cries of the worms being split apart from the plow. It was just that moment of profound, deep sensitivity and what swept him over was the beauty of the world and the sadness of this world. And a way, as a way of self-soothing, he began to become mindful of his breath in and breath out. And so recalling this memory now sitting underneath this tree many years later, after recalling this memory, he too began to become mindful of the breath in and the breath out. But what was remarkable 
was that up to that point, the breath and the meditation was used to only develop unification, concentration, absorption. That's what I was speaking about, concentration meditation. But in remembering the plow cutting open the worms and the suffering and the pain that was evoked, he turned his attention more with that concentrated awareness to being aware of the breath as it comes in and goes out. He began to focus more on the impermanent and changing nature of things in a concentrated way. This is a real turning point. This is the difference between concentration meditation and Vipassana insight meditation. In those days, no one was practicing Vipassana. It was all about absorption, concentration, and one-pointedness, but now he was using his concentrated mind to experience and be aware of change. And this set in motion deeper realizations and understandings about his life, about suffering, about its causes, about its pathway to greater freedom. These are known sometimes as the Four Noble Truths, but I really look at uh, it more as, as a deep realization, a deep insight into the nature of things. While he was on his vigil to awaken, there was this celestial metaphorical figure called Mara. Mara is known as the tempter. Whether you know it or not, Mara's been visiting you the last few days. <laughs> Mara's been saying, who are you to meditate? You can't do this. Or hey, why don't you go see a movie? That'll, why waste your time sitting? Go watch a nice show. That's Mara. Mara comes in many disguises and shapes. And it says as the Buddha was was vigilant in his awakening and then Mara was not wanting him to wake up and he was charging him and so he tried to scare him with fear and cast like these thousands of arrows that were coming towards him as the Buddha was just sitting there and the Buddha said to Mara, I see you Mara, I see you, I see you fear. And as he saw the fear completely and knew he couldn't be touched by fear because he had seen it, the flower, the arrows turn into lotus blossoms. This is all just beautiful metaphors. Then Mara tried to seduce him, but again, the Buddha said, I see you, Mara. And it's even said after the Buddha's awakening that Mara would come and sneak up on the Buddha from time to time. But every time Mara would try to sneak up, the Buddha would say, hey, Mara, I see you're here. Come on in, have some tea with me. And Mark kind of go away. So when you get visited, you also can say as you're sitting in your own vigil, I see you, Mara. I see you. I see you fear. I see you anger. I see you confusion. I see you, Mara. There's these realizations, and I'd like to speak about one of them in particular tonight, and, and tomorrow night some more of the others. Actually, tonight really two. And so the first two is this realization of suffering or dissatisfactoriness. 
And it's not to say that there's not joy in the world, wonderful in the world, but there is indeed, and the Buddha was able to just name and acknowledge that, that you know, illness is suffering and death is suffering, being around those you don't like is suffering, feeling stress is, you know, that there, there is at times suffering in the world and, and to be able to name that and to acknowledge it. But perhaps what's even greater importance after this being named is this investigation into its causes, which is the second realization. The third and fourth have to do with, with the path that leads to the lessening, to the eradication that I'll speak about tomorrow night. Maybe. <laughs> and, um, so but these first two, suffering and its causes, have always been very, very important to me. So if you, you know, if you can figure out what's driving your suffering, if you can begin to understand the causes, then you can begin to potentially untangle the tangle that you've got tangled up into. So I'd like to read to you a very beautiful, very striking translation of the Noble Truth of the, of the Cause of Suffering from uh, an English monk. His name is Achan Amaro. He's actually in England and a wonderful person. And he, he wrote a really a, a beautiful translation. It's kind of haunting. So this is it. He goes, this is the, the noble truth of the great realization of the cause of suffering. It is craving. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating. It's craving that is compelling and intoxicating and causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now, here and now, there. Namely, it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. Have anyone ever experienced a type of a craving that is compelling and intoxicating? I want it. Just, oh, intoxicating feeling, I want it. Speaking about, and then ever seeking delight and causing us to be born into things again and again because I want it. It's also important to say that what fuels these cravings for sensual delight, the wanting to be someone, the wanting to feel nothing, is ignorance or unawareness, not seeing clearly. Because of the not seeing clearly gives rise to these cravings, as if somehow these cravings are going to fulfill that empty hole that is within me. It's born out of a sense of deficiency. Somehow I'm not enough inside, so I try to find my fullness with something else. This type of lack of awareness is what causes the wheel of suffering to go round and around and around. Sometimes in Buddhist psychology, it's known as dependent origination 
is a very formidable and kind of, whoa, that's a big word, dependent origination, but a very simple way to understand. The dependent origination describes this wheel of suffering, this wheel of grasping and then not fully always being satisfied and having to get something else again and going round and round. So my old teacher, Tampulu Cero, he used to, to offer a very simple way to understand this fuel or this wheel of suffering. And he says, if you know, it'll break. If you don't know, you will go around and around. This is dependent origination. If you know, if you know, you can begin to break the cycle. If you catch you, like you see what's there, you can begin to break that cycle. If you don't know, you spin around. That's why the other day I was mentioning when Seto was saying, who's worse, the one who kills and knows they're killing or the one that doesn't know? And he says, it's the one that doesn't know is worse. Because if you don't know, you'll go on killing forevermore. But if you do, that knowing will eventually help you to realize that it's causing suffering and you'll begin to stop. So if you know, you can break the cycle. If you don't know, you will go around and around. So I'd like to just take a look and take apart a little bit this craving for sensual delight that with some of our Freudian friends might call it the id, the ego, the libidinal, the erotic, the eros instinct. So those words compelling, intoxicating, give us birth into things again and again to feel good. We can relate this to food, to sex, to shopping. You probably have here, you know about Amazon? on the internet, the Amazon's got this one wonderful thing. It's called one click. Boom. You got it. It's like that's, the, like that's the craving for sensual delight. Shopping. One click. Boom. Another one. Another one. That all these things are going to somehow fill this hole. <clears throat> I remember once eating my favorite vegan ice cream. Everything was going really well. I was in the land of being satiated. I'd lost my sense of self. I was just tasting the good taste and it was just bliss. And then I noticed I only had one spoonful left and a whole field of sadness swept over me. And <laughs> what the hell am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? I could go get another bowl. But I also thought, I don't know, that may not fill it either. So we get a chance in our practice to begin to take a look at these types of desires or these types of longings and begin to realize that even the very fact that I'm desiring it is, is creating kind of a type of attention, a type of agitation. And then it finally gets fulfilled and satisfied when I'm eating the ice cream, but then it goes away. And then I want more. It's kind of like the addictive cycle. If I can just leave myself and get satiated, it'll be all right. You can see how we get allured into so many things, these sensual delights, but these delights are impermanent. And as if we begin to identify that somehow I find my home in these things, I can never be fully satisfied because it it changes, but that addictive quality 
born out of a sense of deficiency, that I'm not enough inside myself. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy the ice cream or making love with our beloved and whatever we do, but it's when somehow we think that our happiness comes from something outside of us, there's a lot of pain. And I think for those of us that have mates and even have wonderful marriages, I think you all know um, even that doesn't do it and you know about your nights in your bed alone and even the person next to you can't make you fully whole. As much as we yearn for that. Maybe there's moments where that feels like that's there, but even there, this happiness comes from inside. And I'm looking outside for it. Kabir, he says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to, but it keeps on spinning out. I gave up all my sewn clothes and I wore a robe. But then I noticed one day that the cloth was really beautiful. So I bought some burlap. That's even a more grungier type of robe. But he said, I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. Then I pulled back all of my sexual longings, but now I discover I'm really angry all the time. Then I gave up rage, and then I notice I'm greedy. I worked hard at dissolving my greed, and now I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> this goes on. <laughs> the second craving is to be someone, in Buddhist psychology, this is the I, 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 I. <laughs> I want to be special, or I'm not special. Inflation, deflation, flip side of the coin, all about me. I want to be someone. I want to be Bob, I want to be a meditation teacher. I drive a Prius, I have this, I have that. I am special, and, and I want you to know, and I want you to tell me that I'm special so that I know that I'm special, because I don't know it myself. I'm looking for, there's an old country western song that says, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm looking for love and reassurance that I'm special from you, rather than me knowing that inside my own heart. And how much I have left myself for another to become whole. Ay, ay, ay. This is a big one though, and it is important for us in our own development to have you know, self-worth. But when our worth is dependent upon what other people say about who it is that we are, we get trapped and we can never get enough. No matter how much wonderful things are coming at you, you need to hear it more because you don't know it inside your own heart. This is a type of a deficiency that I'm dependent on others outside of me to make me whole. Not that we can't join and partner together but this hunger, this craving to be somebody, to be special, to be whole, outside of ourselves, leads to a lot of pain. We know it. This I, I, I. So Emily Dickinson, she writes, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? 
Then there's a pair of us, but don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. Oh, how dreary it is to be somebody and how public. It's like a frog to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. I'm nobody. Who are you? The third craving is the craving to feel nothing. Like thanatos, the death instinct. Of course, I didn't mention in this craving to be someone, this is our classical narcissist, the superego. But in the third craving is this feeling to feel nothing. Now, for many years, I did not relate to this. I actually didn't even know what this meant. And a few years ago, my older son had some health problems. And there was a period of time where there was a possibility he had cancer. And while this was happening, I was actually teaching a meditation retreat. I was actually preparing to write a talk about these, this particular talk that I'm doing tonight on the, the causes of suffering. And while I was at the retreat, and we still didn't know if he had cancer or not, um, I noticed that as soon as I was done teaching, I would <laughs> almost run to my room, get in the bed under the covers, and I would, all I wanted to do was sleep, sleep, sleep. And I'd wake up and I'd be okay for about a split of a second and then I'd be flooded with, oh my gosh, what the, what's going on? How scared I was, how worried I was. And then I began to dawn on me, oh. Well actually, let me just back up a minute and say that it turned out that my son had mono nucleosis rather than cancer. I love mono now. <laughs> Not that I would wish anyone to have mono, but mono's a heck of a lot easier to a curable <laughs> than cancer. But of course, some cancers are curable too, but... And I noticed and learned about myself at that time, like, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about, wanting to feel nothing, because I didn't want to feel anything. It was so incredibly painful to be awake. And then I began to realize, and it began like a flood of like all the different places in my life where I didn't want to feel things. I could lose myself in television, could lose myself in drugs, lose myself in a book, lose myself in sex, lose, whatever it took to lose myself, you know, to turn off, to turn away, to go numb, to not feel, to not be here. Oh yeah, I could, I could relate to that. I have to admit, I still like science fiction. <laughs> But how many things do we, in our lives, do we turn, like we shut off, we turn away. We don't want to feel it, just to not feel anything. Sometimes it's important, of course, particularly with post-traumatic stress disorder. Sometimes it's, it's, we can't live, it's too difficult to feel it. But there comes a time, as I mentioned, that it's important for us to feel, to heal. But how much of the time do we lose ourselves in, not wanting to feel something, turning away, being separated from our emotional world. 
There's an old Simon and Garfunkel song. And it kind of just typifies this type of feeling. It goes, I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. Remember that song? Mm-hmm. A rock feels no pain and an island never cries. I don't want to feel anything. So ultimately, these types of cravings for sensual delight, to be someone, to feel nothing, are rooted in that type of a deficiency. We're not enough. This is really important for us to begin to see how this plays out so much in our lives in so many ways. Again, rooted with this unawareness. And this is why mindfulness plays such a sparkling role in making any positive changes. You know, that difference in week number four, we're talking about stress reactivity coming off the unpleasant events in MBSR and beginning to look at the habitual patterns. And then what happens when we bring the light of awareness? And we begin to respond in a much more constructive way in what's happening with the stress that we're dealing with rather than reacting in old habitual patterns and ways that take us down. So these teachings of these causes of suffering is what John Kabat-Zinn was exposed to and, and retranslating into stress reactivity, stress responding, but it has the similar elements within. So this work begins on ourselves. Mindfulness is the key. And mindfulness begins to set upon a cascade of other awakening factors. And in speaking about the fourth foundation of mindfulness, I mentioned earlier in the week that you know, the five hindrances is the very first teaching in the fourth foundation. And the second teaching is of these factors of awakening. And these factors of awakening is what wakes us up to suffering, its causes, and the pathway to greater liberation. This is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And it's important to say, as we awaken, we cannot bypass our ego. We cannot bypass our story, our narrative, whatever you want to call it. This cannot be bypassed. This is the very work that we need to embrace and work with to, to, to heal and to, to become more free. Our narrative, our story, is the very work that we do. So we talk about where is the ruby hidden? It's hidden in our story. And to wake up and to realize that maybe it's a limited definition, this definition that I'm King Minus and everything I touch breaks is not true. This is a story that I have believed to be who I am. Sometimes the Buddha is referred to as, as experiencing the unconditioned. If there's an unconditioned, it speak, if there's an unconditioned, then there must be a conditioned. And that the, the emphasis here is that he broke through the conditioning, experienced the unconditioned. And another name for the conditioned from a psychological point of view, it's our narrative, our story. Our practice is to work with our story to see where it's limited, where we're not seeing clearly, and to heal, to transform. So we cannot bypass ourselves. We're working with ourselves. And of course, in our interviews today and yesterday, I know there's lots coming up, 
We're coming up against our grief, our anger, our sadness, our fear, and these cannot be bypassed. As we've been mentioning, this is to be embraced. And through the embracing, through the acknowledging, we can begin to heal. As we begin to know this, we begin to develop a sense of some trust. The pathway to freedom is found inside. Here's a little reading from Patrick Overton. He says, when I come to the edge of all the light that I know, and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. That I'll find something to stand on or I will be taught to fly. When I come to the edge of all the light I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. I will find something to stand on or I will be taught to fly. So these seven factors of awakening, mindfulness is the very first one, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity are these other awakening factors. And we know about mindfulness, we've been practicing mindfulness, it's this incredible quality that we have as human beings that we can be cognizant of what's happening in the here and now. We can be aware of what's here. Mindfulness is our birthright. It's a miraculous quality to be present, to be here. So this is where it begins. When we become mindful, rather than in our world of self-reference, now we're becoming self-aware. Big difference. Like once I realize I've been caught in my story, that's awareness. I'm not so caught in my story. That moment earlier, I'm just lost in it. But the moment I become aware, I've, oh, I've just been down this road again, but now I'm back. So mindfulness is the first factor that assists in waking up. The second factor is investigation, to become curious. What's going on here? So we've been talking about this in some of our question and answers in our groups. What's, what's going on? Mindfulness has this quality, investigation has this quality that it wants to know, it's interested. Here I am again, stuck in some place of anger. I want to kind of get to know this more. In the teachings, it's very much encouraged to trust our own direct experience. And Pali says, Ehi Pasiko, see for yourself with your own direct experience. Don't believe the teachers, the books, don't believe by hearsay. See for yourself with your own experience. It's very much, for this type of teaching is found with all of within these teachings. See for yourself with your own experience and test it out. So it also offers some criteria. Test it out. Is by doing these teachings or practices lessening your greed, hatred, and ignorance? Is it bringing you more contentment, loving kindness, more clear seeing? And if so, you know this is going in the right direction. 
And conversely, if it's making you more confused and angry and selfish, you probably know, yeah, this is maybe not the most beneficial path. <laughs> See for yourself. So we use and employ inquiry in our meditation practice at times, and we've been talking about this, like coming to a fork in a road. Do I go to the left or on the right? And let's say something gets activated, and that we can use our qualities of awareness and investigation to check this out more. But it's not like some type of a mental analysis. It's feeling into the feelings. We were talking about that this morning, like feeling into that feeling, and see if maybe it's gonna show you something. So I'll give you an example of, a, of an inquiry that I did a number of years ago. So I was on the telephone and I was talking with a hospital administrator about our mindfulness program. And I'm not sure, it seemed like almost from the very start I, I felt like um, it wasn't going in a good direction. <laughs> and I was getting pissed off. And um, as the conversation increased, I was getting mad. And um, I was getting more heated. But then I looked at my clock and I realized that I had to get off the phone because I had to go teach a meditation. So I got off the phone without burning the bridge of this conversation, though I was definitely unhappy. And actually, the whole ride to the meditation hall, I was like, I'm going to go get her. When I get done with this meditation, I'm going to call her up and really let her have it. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. And um, so I sat in the meditation and invited everyone to be with the breath. And <laughs> I went to my breath. It lasted about three seconds. When the thought arose, I'm going to really see. I'm going to fucking out. Wandering mind, come back to the breath. That lasted about two other seconds. And this went on for about five minutes. I'd come back to the breath for a second, and then I was just lost in my what I'm going to do to this person. Till it finally. I finally recognized I was really fucking pissed off as hell. <laughs> and that my anger was much more in the foreground than my breath. And I realized at that point it was futile to be with my breath because I was fucking angry. And that anger had to be my meditation. I finally got it. And so, all right, his anger. Now, and then I just kind of just, let me just feel the anger. I could feel it surging in my body and the emotions were like gonna do this and that. And, and, and then I'd get off in what I'm gonna be doing and, and then I'd say, oh wait a minute, just come back. Just feel the anger, anger, anger. And this went on, I'd go off and do the revenge trip and then come back, just feel the anger, anger. Feel that feeling, anger. And gradually in time, the anger without me kind of recognizing when it shifted, but all of a sudden I began to be feeling all this sadness. And then some deep pain arose, this sadness of feeling like I haven't been understood. I haven't been seen, haven't been accepted. And as I sat with that more, 
began to just reflect upon what is this about that somehow I need this person's verification of my own worth. By the end of the meditation, I was back to my breath again, in and out, and there was no phone call that needed to be made. In reflection, I realized this administrator wasn't really being too unreasonable, but what had happened was it had hit an internal, old, wounded, very, very painful and hot nerve inside me. And because of that space of awareness and then that sense and the willingness to investigate what's here, it's anger. And then to stay with the anger, to open to the anger, to acknowledge the anger, it began to move into sadness, that moves into these discoveries. This is what I mean by inquiry. We begin to understand, and of, and of course, when I began to understand more about what was fueling and charging my trigger, yes, no phone call to be made. I was owning my own pain and now beginning to learn from it. And not only beginning to learn from it, to realize, to regain my own sense of, of one's own sovereignty, that one is okay with who one is. It's an investigation, a very powerful quality. It wants to know. And it's very different, even like with any of these hindrances, like if you come up with doubt, you come up with wanting or not wanting, or sleepiness or restlessness, like the moment you become mindful, the other factor arises like, I want to get curious about it. And that's very different. Or there's a wound that arises within you and you become aware of it. And rather than going down, like, you know, when you're not aware of it, we're just down that road in reactive land. But when we become aware of it, we have an opportunity now to bring our awareness to it, to begin to get curious about it. This is a factor of awakening. And of course, with that factor of awakening, as we get curious, we get, we're getting into it. I'm getting excited. I want to, there's some energy that's beginning to come up. Because of that energy, there's joy that begins to arise. Another factor, I'm, I'm really getting into this. This is enjoyable. I want to know. Sometimes in the text, they talk about five different qualities of joy, and I'd like to just say them to you because they're, they're kind of funny. But first is hair-raising joy with goosebumps. And the second, it's like a rush, like a lightning bolt. And the third, it comes in waves. The fourth, it's uplifting. The fifth, it's pervading joy. So there's different qualities of rushes of joy because you're getting so into wanting to know, like you, the love of truth, the love of investigation, the love of wanting to know. These are qualities of awakening. And that sets upon a sense of being settled Another quality of awakening, you're getting tranquil. I love sometimes, you ever see like the, I'm sure you have like little babies, their backs are so straight and they're looking at a feather. They're just like so like tranquil and serene and alert and awake. So the sense of tranquility, serenity, you're getting concentrated, you're getting really into it. These are qualities of awakening. <coughs> And the last quality that begins to develop is that balancing factor. <coughs> the balancing factor has a lot of wisdom in it. 
Like if you're up at the top of a mountain and you can look below and kind of figure out how to get to the other side, you're going through this valley and cutting across here and there's the river and so forth, you, you have some perspective. You see, you have a bigger picture. It's different when you're in the valley itself and it's hard to see where to go. So this factor of equanimity, the factor of balance, the factor of perspective, the factor that we come to understand this ups and downs to life, that weather systems move in of different thoughts and emotions, sensations, and they go out. So this wise factor of equanimity, an awakening factor giving us perspective, giving us a sense of uh, wisdom. Perhaps we don't get as upset with things when it doesn't go your way. The lessening of grasping and craving, aversion, seeing more clearly into things, and of course, it's not like getting rid of things, but it's our wise relationship to them. I think I mentioned the other day about Ram Das and someone saying to him, have, since you've meditated so much and you took so much LSD, have you just like got rid of all of your neuroses? And he said, no, not at all, but I consider them now to be more like my pets. <laughs> so there's a sense of, of befriending the shadow parts inside us. The understanding that these two need our love these parts of ourselves that we've pushed away, that we don't want to look at, we begin to embrace again, to own, to acknowledge, to befriend. These awakening factors are the conditions that help us to become more free. So let us not turn away, but to open the German poet Rilke, he says, if we only arrange our life in accordance with the principle which tells us we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us as the most alien will become the most intimate and trusted of experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of time, the myths about the dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. So the sense of befriending is very important in our own practice. And Carl Jung, he writes, I feed the hungry, I forgive an insult, I even try to love my enemies. But what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars, the most impudent of offenders are all within me, and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. <coughs> Very beautiful statement, powerful, that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved.
There's a perennial wisdom that understands that the turning into is the pathway to the heart. So I, I grew up in an area, in some ways a little bit similar to where we are in Finland, though you guys are a little bit more north than I am, but in the Boston and Vermont, Massachusetts area, Vermont area, we get a lot of winter, snow, and the four seasons. And I remember when I was 16 years old, I got my car license, and I began to drive. And from time to time, I'd get caught in a skid. I think you all know about driving in snow and getting in a skid. It's a fact of life in Finland. It's a fact of life in New England. And at 16 years old, when I got into a skid, I turned away from that sucker because I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And lo and behold, my car kept on skidding out of control. And it was scary. I remember telling my dad about this and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn your wheels into it. And when I heard that, that scared me. Are you kidding? Turning into the skid? I want to get away from it. So I didn't really fully believe him. So I kept on turning away and I kept on skidding out. But then one day after experiencing the futility of turning away, I decided to take a chance, a small chance, a little chance. I just slightly turned it a little bit towards the skid. And I could feel all of a sudden my car beginning to move into a straighter direction. That was revelatory. That was like, I couldn't believe that. And I began to turn a little bit more into skid and my car began to straighten out. I feel like my father planted in me a little seed that has taken some time to germinate, to begin to trust turning in to the fear. It feels counterintuitive to turn into the fear or to turn into the skid, right? I mean, at least I felt it was counterintuitive. I thought I would get away from it. But the more I got away from it, the more I skidded out. But when I began to turn in, so it's counterintuitive, but I think there's a perennial wisdom here. We begin to turn into what's happening. Yes, we've spent a lot of time turning away. But don't you know, it keeps on coming back. So here's a very powerful poem called Unconditional by Jennifer Wellwood. It speaks about turning into. She says, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. So the turning into aloneness, she discovers connection. Turning into face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition I flee from, it pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. Very powerful teaching there. We're learning to trust ourselves, to turning 
into our own skids. And you know, I also want to say, easy does it. I'm not wanting to push over the edge. You get too close to the fire, you get burned. But as there ways that we can begin to touch those places, to acknowledge the places that have not been acknowledged, to allow ourselves to feel what we haven't let ourselves feel, to begin to meet our shame. One person described to meet one's own monster with love. The monster's crying out for love. The shame is crying out to be healed, to begin to embrace the parts of ourselves that we have disowned and pushed away. This is what it means to begin to work with our story to heal it, to begin to experience breaking free of the conditioning that has enslaved us. So, a couple more readings and we're done. This is from Dana Falls and it's called Allow. Another just extraordinarily powerful teaching poem. She says, there's no controlling life. You can't control a lightning bolt. You can't control a tornado. If you dam a stream, if it's big enough, it'll create a new channel. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fair fantasies, failures and success, and when loss rips off the doors of your heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, the practice becomes to simply bear the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, a whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. And that higher ground is about becoming real, genuine, being yourself. That's what we've all loved about you anyways, is you. Getting to know ourselves again and so I'll end with one other reading from The Velveteen Rabbit, which is a children's story. And it's about a toy horse that through a lot of time becomes real. And this toy rabbit is having conversation with the horse on how do you become real. So the rabbit asked the horse one day, what is real? And the horse says, real isn't how you're made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just plays with you, but really, really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Yes, sometimes it does, said the skin horse. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. 
It doesn't happen all at once at the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off <laughs> and your eyes drop out and you get loose in your joints and you look kind of very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. Once you're real. We'll just sit for a minute. <coughs> May we all just find the gateways into our hearts. May we know deeper freedom. May we befriend the parts of ourselves that we've disowned. May there be peace. for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.